Before we start, a quick note. Today's episode touches on suicidal thoughts. Exact time codes are in the description if you prefer to skip that section. Please know you're not alone and don't be afraid to ask for help. Welcome to Amplified, a podcast featuring conversations with prominent diverse voices in sports and sports media. I'm your host, Megan Reyes, and making sports a more equal and inclusive space is a personal passion of mine. If you're also in the sports media industry, or if you're a fan, you probably already know a little bit about my guests, what they do on the job, and how they got their start. So I'm skipping the superficial questions. Instead, I want to learn about their upbringings, how they've managed mental health and the idea of belonging, and their identity outside of the industry. On this episode, we're joined by Dior Ginyard, who recently joined Dapper Labs in an athlete partnerships role. At the time of this recording, he was Director of Player Affairs at the NFL Players Association. Regardless of his role, Dior and I share a really good discussion about identity and purpose, managing difficult thoughts, and why it's so important for Black men to be vulnerable about mental health. I hope you find our conversation as therapeutic as I did. Let's get Dior's story amplified. Dior, thank you for joining me. For those that know Dior, he works at the NFLPA, but for those that don't, could you just briefly share with us how you got to your position at the NFLPA and also the work you previously did with Athlete And? Yep, yep. Um, so one, thanks for having me on. Um, my journey to working at the NFL Players Association was was different, honestly. I um, Basically, they hired me because I had a freak injury playing uh, college sports. When I graduated from High Point High School in Prince George's County, Maryland, like my dream job and what I wanted to do um, was kind of the stereotypical one to play football in the NFL. Um, but didn't have the talent, though. I ended up going to a small school in Maryland called Frostburg State. I hated it. Uh, I was going to play. I was planning on transferring my first year there. I didn't even play the first football season because I was uh, recovering from a shoulder injury. And December 3rd, 2006, my whole life changed. was playing a game of tackle football with some teammates. And we ran head on with one of my teammates and was knocked unconscious on the field. When I woke up, I was on a helicopter getting flown to a hospital in Cumberland, Maryland. I'm like, I'm on the, I'm on this first time in the air. Honestly, never been on a plane ride at 18, up to 18 years old. So I was asking them, like, what's going on? Like, why am I like on a helicopter? And they were just asking me questions like, what's today? And I couldn't remember the day, anything like that. So long story short, I fractured my skull playing football. Um, had a brain injury. I was slowly going brain dead. Uh, so I had emergency brain surgery once I got to the hospital. All at that point, I could no longer play sports. And then from there, de- dealt with like a, a, a long, you know, couple of years of like rehab and cognitive therapy, PTSD and things like that. So long story short, that was dashed. Um, I noticed that, I, you know, I still wanted to stay in sports. Um, and then when I was, you know, recovering with my injury and dealing with like depression and suicidal thoughts at 18, I wrote a lot. And so three years passed, I ended up, you know, kind of taking on some different internships, graduated from Bowie State University. Um, didn't want to jump right into sports. Everybody told me, go to the ticket sales route, work in ticket sales and then jump around. I'm like, I'm not, I need to make money, like whatever. So took this job in my field. I graduated with my degree in communications, spent two and a half years with this company called Lockheed Martin. Hated, you know, and I, don't, I didn't hate the company. I hated the subject matter, like, you know, so, but, you know, where I was at in my career, I was 22 years old. It, it helped me grow professionally, you know, gain some big business acumen, et cetera. Spent two and a half years with Lockheed Martin, two and a half years passed. I'm like, all right, I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to get back on the sports. I was 25 at the time. 
And there was one job description at the NFL Players Association. Uh, it was a player development manager. And a lot of you that, in the first sentence in the job description, it said, in this role, you'll help current NFL players prepare for life after football. And I was like, wow, like I was, you know, I hit rock bottom when I had my brain injury, you know, dealt with a lot of those things that a lot of men don't like talking about. But I was able to get my life back together, earn my undergrad degree. I had to earn my master's. I was like, I'm just going to apply. I applied. They called me. I just told them. I didn't even talk about my, my educational background, my job. I just told them about myself. Like I went through this traumatic injury. You know, I was there. I went to HBCU. I was all the stereotypes and misconceptions. Didn't have a father growing up. And they were like, wow, like we think you can help talk to players about like transition. And so they hired me and the rest has been history. That was seven years ago now. And my role wow. has changed. Yep. So, um, yeah, so now I'm director of player affairs. That's a remarkable story. And thank you for sharing that. I actually did not know about your injury until the other day when I was, you know, doing some research and uh, like we know each other, but Googled you to see what articles were out there. And I read one of the pieces and I had no idea. And that's just by the grace of God, really, because those types of injuries are life threatening, should have been very life threatening. It was life threatening. But for Mm -hmm. you to overcome that is remarkable. And to hear that story and for you to share, thank you for sharing with us and Obviously, we're so happy you're here. And something that you mentioned with Athlete And and NFLPA was life after football. And you and I have discussed Athlete And. I'm such a big champion for the initiative because I think it's so important. And it's focused on building identity and life after football. What would you say is Dior's identity? How do you separate your sense of self from work? That's a good question. And even just the premise behind Athlete Dan, it was almost like a personal thing for me, but also something related to the work that I do. And so for me, I think back about when I laid on that field and had the brain injury and then my dream of playing football was gone. So I had to figure out what was my life beyond sports. And I'm not going to lie, like it was challenging. I mean, I had some very, very, very dark days that I remember vividly. But, you know, that that's what I went through. That's not who I am. And I'm like, that doesn't define me. It's a part of my life, you know. And I actually look back now and I'm actually glad I went through it because I wouldn't be where I'm at and the person I am because of it. And so I think about the work that I do in the past seven years, you know, spending time working on behalf of NFL players, like, you know, my job is I can't help a player run fast or jump high, um, but I can help them with like their off-the-field development. And I think about the things that helped me with my transition, where resources, where people talking to ac- academic advisors, we're talking to pastors, talking to my mom. Um, I realized that I was those person, that person for a lot of the NFL players that I work for. And so that's really where Athlete Dan came from because, you know, they play sports, but like who they are beyond sports is going to last a lot longer than their playing careers. And so my job is to help them with that part, you know, preparing for that part. And so that really was the premise behind Athlete Dan. And I think about myself and my identity. I definitely think I look at all that I've been through, not even just with the injury. You know, I talked a lot about just there and then going to an HBCU. And I feel like I hit a lot of those like misconceptions and like stereotypical, you know, things. And but I'm still here. Right. And I, I think about like making the four starting to 30. It's like you don't I don't look like somebody naturally that would have made an award like that. Like even the work that I do, like I don't work in a revenue generating role. Like I look at when I made the list that year, I was the only person that wasn't an athlete, you know, that wasn't an agent that wasn't, you know, so I did professional development, which is not bringing any money into an organization really. It's working on behalf of people. So I think my identity is around just serving people. Right. Like even where I'm at now in my career as a director. 32 years old, like my dream isn't really like to climb the corporate ladder. I like, I know jobs will come eventually. I feel like my purpose is really feeding back into like this next generation. And that's been like my biggest thing that I've kind of focused on for myself. 
participating in things like this, you know, speaking engagements at universities, going back to my community where there are young black men, black kids who don't have a father like me and need me to walk into the room. And so I feel like that's why I've been blessed to be in the position that I am right now. So like I can feed back into the next generation. So I would say that's my identity now. I love that. A, a purpose-driven life is so important. And having that as a core value, and you can bring that into your work, and you can make the difference that you have made. I mean, to make Forbes 30, 30 under 30, and to be in the position you are at 32, and the difference you've made, whether it's for active or you know now retired NFL players, or even your community is so important. And I think part of the reason I like to have these conversations is I know for a lot of us in the industry, people struggle with who their identity is outside of their job. A lot of people know us as sports industry professionals or just know us by our title and the things we do. And sometimes that we can tangle that and it can be difficult for us as person, as people to untangle and for us to even ask ourselves, who am I outside of my job? I've had that struggle. It's definitely something I've worked on and has compounded over time and added to some of my anxiety because there have been times in a social, when I was in a social focused role and my identity gets tied to it and maybe something goes wrong. Now I'm like, do people see me as the brand? They don't, but that's how I perceived it. And so I love that you have that identity for yourself outside of your job. You can carry it into it, yeah. but then you also know that there's space to separate the two. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's perfectly put. And it's funny because I'm saying that from where I'm at right now, but I mean, it took me a while to get here. Like when I was younger working, getting the job in sports, like I was hitting the ground running, you know, traveling and trying to be everything to everybody. And, you know, even internally, like taking on projects when I'm just super overwhelmed and, you know, working in sports, you always got to be on and you always got to network because it's one of those industries like, you know, entertainment, music that everybody wants to work in and every, and somebody will take your job that's younger than you, that'll take less money. And so you always got to be hustling and bustling. And I think about even when I look back at like the Forbes thing and how I let some of those moments kind of get to my head. Like when I made Forbes, I'm like, all right, now I got to go speak. So now on top of my job and being a father, like I'm now trying to take on all these speaking engagements. And then you look up and like everything that I do, my purpose is like tied to my job and like who I am. And it's like, that's not healthy. And eventually you do, you do hit a wall. Hopefully you don't, hopefully you become a realization of your own. But for me, it was like almost hitting the wall almost. And so I had to make some adjustments. I like that you brought that up. Uh, the Forbes 30 under 30 and you wanting to do, take on all these speaking engagements. I know I like to put pressure on myself. Uh, and then I, I do it unintentionally. So a lot of times I start to feel like I now have to be the voice of reason for whatever cause I'm passionate about and I'm vocal about. So last year when I chose to be more vocal about social justice, a lot of people started looking at me as a voice of reason. And I'm happy to use my platform for that. As I've started with you know more diverse voices in sports and speaking out about how important it is to be diverse and inclusive in the industry, I've now feel like I've put pressure on myself to speak on behalf of every issue. And it it's important for me to use my platform as such, but sometimes I just put unnecessary pressure on myself to almost be the moral compass for society. Uh, so you mentioned that with when you took on some of that maybe internal pressure to start doing speaking engagements and leverage your Forbes 30 under 30 and the platform you created. Um, It brings me to an interesting point that I wanted to discuss with you is the concept of perfectionism. For me, it's because now that I have created this 
social presence as a voice of reason for XYZ, I now have to speak on behalf of that and I have to do it perfectly. Can you relate to perfectionism? Is that something that you identify with? Yeah, I can. And honestly, I think those just thinking about it, it's just like it's such an unsustainable, unhealthy habit almost. And I think, you know, talking to people that work in the industry and again, obviously, because I work in the industry, you know, those are people I talk to most from a career perspective. And a lot of people suffer from the same thing. And it is that perfectionism mindset. And um, but there's a eventually you get to a point where like that's impossible, like. I feel like for me, I had to get to a point where I gave myself grace and not look forward externally, but internally, like, no, you don't have to say yes to everything. You don't have to speak on everything. And that's okay. And again, I look back now and it's like, no one put that pressure on me. Like my job and I love working at the FLPA because it's so, so accepting, such a family. Um, my bosses didn't put pressure on me, but I think it was more so me. And I look back over time once I did hit that wall, because that's all you can do when you kind of like hit rock bottom. All you can, you know, you can look in retrospect, like, how did I get here? You know? And I think about, you know, the pressures that I put on myself from not having a father there and trying to like, you know, again, I talked about like growing up, I didn't have a lot of black men to look up to, right? Didn't have a lot of many men in my family. Um, And so I went like, I got to become that for everybody. And so I got to work. I got to work. I can't, you know, I can't give up. I can't be tired. Like when I make fours, like now I got to use this. I got to leave the door open for everybody. I had a seat at the table. Like in that mindset, like I look up and I'm a lot of you not for like a year. I had a headache every day. And it's just like, how did I let that think that was okay? And like, I don't have to be, I could have a bad day. I could take a mental health day, you know? You know, there now I'll turn down speaking and engagement in a heartbeat, right? And it's like, because there's a younger person that could take that on. And so I think it's more so like, again, it's that internal battle that, you know, it sounds like a, at least like, you know, you're having a conversation with yourself about it. And I think that's where it starts. It's like being super honest about where you're at. And, you know, and if you do need help. You know, sometimes the help is not in resources support. The help is just having that conversation with yourself. Yeah, it's also definitely I've learned to listen to my body. And I just actually the other week I committed to a speaking engagement. And that day I did not have a good mental health day. And the perfectionist in me was like, I have to show up. I have to do the speaking engagement. I committed to it because I want to be a woman of my word. And I am. And yet I also knew I'm not in a good mental space. I'm probably not going to show up as my best self. So what's right for me here? And I had to take that moment and have a conversation with myself. And I, and I was honest, I'm like, I can't do it. And I'm, I've gotten to a point where I actually uh, turned it. I said, I wasn't able to make it and said, I am not having a good mental health day and I can't show up as my best self. And unfortunately, you know, I just can't do it please let me know if there's future ones. And I think it's difficult for people to do that because it takes a lot of vulnerability, but that honesty is so important because people understand. We're still starting to destigmatize mental health. And so it's going to take some time, but I've had to do that twice now recently. And every time they understand. So, because I could have said, hey, unfortunately something came up, I can't make it. That sounds a lot flakier than I'm just not in the right mental space and I don't want to show up as not my best self, because it's like, I appreciate that. hundred percent. A hundred percent. Kudos to your courage. Cause I don't know if I'm, I'm not sure I'm there yet, to be honest. <laughs> You'll get there. Right. It, it took the first time I had to have that one first conversation when it was um, received with, I totally understand. Please take care of yourself. Let's do this next time. Then it got a little bit easier, but it is scary to say that I can't commit to what I promised I would commit to because I'm not in a great mental space. 
because it requires vulnerability and vulnerability is scary, as we all know. So Dior, you shared both with me and also on social, you're very vocal about your experiences with anxiety and depression. And that vulnerability, again, is very important for other people out there to know that they aren't alone. I first think I realized I had anxiety when I graduated college. Uh, I think I was just always, I'm very high functioning. So growing up and through high school, I, I played sports up until middle school, but my my athletic career was was going to be uh, short lived. I'm I'm five one and maybe a hundred five soaking wet if I'm lucky. So I think the only sport I had a chance in was soccer, and I don't like to run. So my <laughs> athletic career was short lived. We had the same boat. <laughs> but I was a dancer, so I I did ballet, I did hip hop, I did jazz. So every day after school, it was school, studio for a few hours, homework, wake up, rinse, repeat. And then through college, I was in a sorority. So I lived in house. I was around a lot of people. So I was always, um, I always had something going on and my brain was always functioning. Once I graduated and had that idle time, like you and I were talking about earlier, that idle time is where it gets really scary for someone with anxiety. So that's when I first realized I had it because I had the time and space for anxious thoughts to creep in. When did you first identify that maybe you were struggling with anxiety and depression? Was it after your injury or was it something that you noticed beforehand? It's a good question. Um, it wasn't after my injury. Like I said, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Obviously, when you have a traumatic brain injury, similar brain injury to like people in the military deal with that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I was a young kid, so you don't, you know, and, and mental health wasn't really talked about. You know, I was 18 a little while ago, <laughs> so it wasn't really talked about. But I think I remember this was the day after my 30th birthday, what, three years ago, I had my first panic attack. Didn't know what was going on. I was in my apartment. I'm like, why am I out of breath? Like, you know, why am I sweating? Why am I, you know, I called my mom. I'm like, hey, I think, I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm, you know, about to pass out. She runs over, rushes over my house, takes me to the hospital. You know, they give me, you know, Xanax and like, you know, you just had a panic attack. Then they started coming more frequently. And so I remember, you know, I was taking time off from work. Because mind you, I had those headaches leading up to it from work, from just being stressed, not from work in general, just, you know, being on the go. And so I remember I started getting CAT scans. So I'm like, maybe it's my brain injury creeping back up. I'm like, so I started pulling out all the files from like when I was, you know, had the injury. And um, I kept trying to work through it, though, and, and kept was on the go and then kept going out with friends and kept drinking and kept partying, and kept enjoying myself. I'm not talking like just like anybody else. And then finally, I just hit a wall. I'd never forget, and I don't think I've ever shared the story externally with anybody, but I was interviewing for a job in LA, dream job, you know, I'm like, finally made it, dream, dream organization, if you can think about what I'm talking about. Had interview, flew out there on a flight and had a panic attack on the flight to LA. Like, moved my seat to the back, they were about to turn the flight around, like, they asked for doctors on the flight. Finally landed in LA. Went to bed anxious, woke up, was still anxious when I woke up. My anxiety only came at certain times, but then now it was like still there. And then I woke up at six o'clock in the morning in LA, went to urgent care. I was like, look, I'm still anxious. I was like, I have an interview, gave me Xanax and was like, go crush your interview, go home. Went, crushed the interview, flew back home, had a nut, took another Xanax, had another panic attack on the flight going back. That was on a Wednesday, Thursday, I got back home and I was like super drained. I woke up and I was like, I can't live like this. I was like, and that's the first time it's like not a suicidal thought, but like that's called like suicide aviation. Like, how can I live with anxiety and not knowing what it, I didn't know it was anxiety. Like, what is going on with me? And so right when I had that thought, I checked, I went to the emergency room. I was like, you know, you fill out the paper. They're like, are you having like suicidal thoughts? I'm like, no, like I love my, like my life. And I'm like, I don't know why that's creeping up, but I had to put it like, you know, 
And so they wouldn't let me go. And I stayed there for three hours and they were like, all right, um, you're good to go. So I went home, was still anxious. And I was like, I drove back to the emergency room. I called my mom and I was like, hey, I'm packing my bag. I'm going to voluntarily check into a mental health facility. This is October, 2022, 2019. Check into a mental health facility. Like, mind you, where like everything you see on TV, they strap you down in a chair. And mind you, this is somebody that was performing high in my job, just came off of the Forbes. No one knew this. And I'm in a mental health facility for four days. And while I was in there, I got like, I knew that I had just did a job interview. They told me to reach out. So I asked them for my phone briefly. They gave me the phone. I had it. They offered me the job. I called them like I'm in a mental facility and like I get a job off for a dream job. Never forget. So I spent there four days and that's when I was talking to a psychiatrist there. And they was like, yeah, you have general anxiety disorder. They was like, they asked me a lot about my upbringing. They asked about the head injury and just things that, you know, decisions that my parents made when I was younger, when they, even when I wasn't born, you know. And they was like, yeah, we got to get you on the right antidepressant. And I'm like, you know, this is life changing. Like, at least I know what I'm dealing with now, but it's like now, you know, I have to change my lifestyle. And so that, that me checking in myself involuntary was the best thing, best decision I could ever make because now I could diagnose with what I was dealing with. And now I'm like, you know, the athlete in me is like, all right, let's go. Just like I took on everything else. I'm like, look, I'm not going to let this define me, you know, but I'm going to figure out what it is and then I'm going to be an advocate so I can be an advocate for it. And so that was what, two and a half years ago. And, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been, a, it's been a journey since then. I'll tell you that it's been a process, but you know, I'm getting, I'm getting over it. Thank you for sharing that story. I know you mentioned you hadn't shared that externally, so it means a lot that you felt this was a safe space to share. And I'm glad you did. Um, I hopefully others that are listening, find it helpful to know that they aren't alone. And a lot of the experiences you shared and those feelings, some of them I can relate to. There's nothing like when you, aren't able to like when before I was able to pinpoint I have anxiety when you're having anxious thoughts and you you know you're sweating and you can't sit still and your heart's racing it's really scary because you you don't know what it is and I remember when I first was experiencing it uh this is also a story I haven't really told anyone so we'll we'll exchange I sent someone a gift I sent someone I was dating at the time a gift and it was a surprise and I hadn't heard yet whether or not they received it, but I knew it was delivered. And I was so anxious over whether or not they got it that I couldn't sit still. And I started having almost a panic attack. And for me, my anxiety shows up as I get cold, I get shaky, my heart races, like my stomach kind of hurts, I can't think. And I called my sister-in-law really, really upset. And she also had anxiety when she was younger. And I was explaining to her how I felt and she asked what the cause was. And I told her about this box and very um, politely, she's like, Megan, forget about the box. Like if the box showed up, it showed up. Forget about the box. What's most important is how you're feeling. But at the time I couldn't identify it. And that's really scary. And now I can take that mental note of when I start, again, taking note of my body and taking inventory of my body and having the conversation with myself of, okay, I noticed that my heart's racing. I noticed that... um, I'm kind of shaky. Oh, shoot, this is my anxiety. And that helps you through it. So that's how it shows up for me. How does anxiety show up for you? Or how are you able to recognize it physiologically? And then once you do, how are you able to maybe feel through it or manage it in real time? That's a good question. It's funny that I look back now, because mind you, that first diagnosis was about two and a half years, a year and a half ago. And now I look back on where I'm at and I'm so I'm so blessed. I try to find the good in everything, honestly. And I'm actually blessed that I went through this and that I had this is something I deal with because, you know, there's a blessing in dealing with anxiety because now I'm so cognizant of how I feel. 
So that's good and it's good and bad, honestly, because it's like now you anything that triggers your anxiety, you keep away. So like for me, I decompress a lot. Like after I finish like a lot of meetings, I'll spend five minutes playing a game on my phone, 10 minutes. Like I like I mentioned, I say no to a lot of things. You know, I'm in a role now where I can let other people travel, you know, instead of me. Like I know I can't travel two or three times during the week, four times during the week like I used to. Uh, but for me, like the, like, for example, like and the thing is, it's funny talking about this because you never really get over anxiety. It always finds ways to creep up. So, for example, I was flying back. I had to meet with the, um, I had to meet with the Los Angeles Rams rookies. Take them out to dinner, do our NFL PA spiel. Flying back, got anxious. Sitting on the plane, I'm like, oh god, here we go again. And I remember my Apple Watch went off. It was like, bling bling, your heart rate is at 120, and he. So I'm like, in the past year and a half, I got a freaked. I started like now, I go to therapy um, every three weeks. I see a psychiatrist every three months. And I'm like, all right, let me do one of my grounding textings. So I started playing this video game on my phone. 10 minutes later, I was fine. You know, and in the past, like, you know, I would have never noticed that. So to your point, it's like now that you can recognize the symptoms, now it's like, all right, what is a way to get your mind off of that, right? Um, because anxiety is only really worry. And that's one of the reasons why I think I've gotten like super, you know, back to being a lot more spiritual over the past couple of years, because I think now I've learned, I've gotten accustomed to like the opposite of worry is worship. So now if I spend more time in prayer, you know, my mind spends more time on that versus the anxious thoughts. So that's kind of my thing. But I know everybody has their own battles and the more we talk about this and share experiences and the more you have podcasts like what you're having right now that people can relate to, I think it starts to help people navigate it. I relate to that a lot. I, when I first realized I had anxiety again at that post-college 22, I grew up religious. I went to Catholic school, my family, we went to church every week, but I definitely turned more personally towards prayer and to God and to understanding because I was able to recognize at that time when you have anxiety and you worry, it's because I was trying to control everything and knowing that like, I cannot be godlike and I cannot control everything because I am not God. That is not my, that is not my job. My job is to, is to be me. And so I, I also turn to that. And even now I, you know, my, my therapist, cause I, I see, I go to therapy biweekly. She at first was giving me things like, cause it's cognitive behavioral therapy. So things you can cognitively do to distract your mind. To your point, you like to play a game. She initially suggested like a word search or a puzzle, something that requires just enough cognitive function for you to distract your mind a little bit, because I think where a lot of people, and I know personally I did this, when people first start realizing they have anxiety is they try to completely remove the thought from their mind. And that is actually what I've learned, yeah, to be most detrimental because now you're trying to lie to yourself or you're trying to suppress it. And I've recently had to remember and learn that the goal isn't to not have anxious thoughts because that's just how our brain works. It's what we do with that thought when it comes up. It's recognizing it, it's labeling it, it's letting it go and then doing whatever it is you need to do for you. It's playing a game for me. Maybe it's meditating. It depends on the day. Maybe it's walking. Maybe it's, you know, calling a friend to distract and, you know, reorient yourself and bring yourself back down to earth. And that's my advice for anyone listening is it's not about not having the thought because that's where I struggled for so long was I thought it was my goal in therapy was to get rid of the thoughts Yes, man, you need to record this and post this on your <laughs> 19, 20,000 followers. No, I don't, you're spot on. I mean, I, honestly, I look back now and when, you know, I still struggled with it in the beginning, it was trying to force the thought away. Mm-hmm. And you don't force it, you kind of lean into it and you own it. And, 
you know, I'm not, you know, some people aren't spiritual, but that that's what worked for me. And it's really not, it's just like, what do you do with that thought? And exactly. so um, this is good stuff though. This is helping me. I'm like, okay. Cause I, it's funny. Like uh, literally I went this morning, I went on a run and I, li- I listened to a devotional again. I'm like, that's why I'm so blessed about the anxiety because it's like got me closer to God. So mm-hmm. it's a whole nother spiel I can go to for a whole nother podcast. But <laughs> season two, you're coming back. Right. <laughs> Shit, I can go deep. But no, I was so devotion this morning and it was about anxiety and it's about worry. And it's a, you know, am I really, you know, anxious thought is really worrying. But are you worried about the thought? Are you worried about like, do you have enough in you to deal with what you're facing? And I'm like, damn, like, that's really good. And it's like, I have in me, you know, the ability, I have Christ that lives in me. He can battle anything for me that's negative. And so the minute a negative thought comes in me, you know, the battle is not mine. It's the Lord. So totally 100% agree with what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to, and I, it's, it's very difficult because I have control, like, tendencies. That's just who I am. And so as I started really practicing CBT religiously, because I went to therapy when I was out of school, you know, at that 22 year age, I was going once a month and I was going with the hope that it would fix me. And I was buying books and I was looking for answers because I just wanted, I just wanted it to be fixed. And then I moved, this was when I was living in Oregon, I moved to California and I didn't see a therapist until last year, which now I go regularly, bi-weekly for a year now. And it's made a difference because I was able to realize, again, it's not about being fixed because I, I also don't like that term because then that um, creates the association that there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. Uh, and I have to remember, again, it's not about having the thought. And once I was able to get to that point, that's when I saw a big shift in my therapy and a big shift in uh, my growth and transformation because it was having to accept myself. This is just how I think. What am I going to do? What am I going to do with it now? Um, and I know I, I know I'm sure a lot of people can relate because it's difficult. Yeah, now this is good, too. And, I, and that's why it's interesting having these type of conversations and why I appreciate them so much. It's because, like, you know, then you think about your high performer, like a lot of people I talk to in this industry that and I won't put their names out there because they can share that story themselves. That, but that talks to me about anxiety and mental health. So it begs to want, you know, you, you wonder, like, is this a something that a lot of people that are high performers deal with? Like when I was in that mental health facility, I'll never forget. It was like 11 people in there battling with schizophrenia. There was a lady in there that was a mom with a lawyer in there and she just hit her breaking point. And so to your to the what you said, it's not that you're broken because the anxiety kind of helps you get to where you are. makes you a high performer. It's just a, something that you just have to deal with. Again, it's not it's part of who, it's not who you are. Yeah. It's just something that you, you manage. So. Exactly. I like that a lot. And you bring up a point that I think a lot is for what you do in your role and for all of us that work in the industry and also are just fans of is a lot of high performers are anxious. A lot of high performers struggle with these same things, which leads us to then kind of make the general assumption association that a lot of high performers such as athletes also deal with this and not everyone discusses it and more people are coming out and discussing it which I think is so important a lot of people on with the biggest names on the biggest stage because that part I think is missed a lot that we are high performers because we are anxious, but we don't have to make that us. But I think it, it, you know, it opens up a conversation and hopefully a lot more athletes will come out and have those conversations about how their anxiety has manifested or how it has affected them in sports, but also how it doesn't make them 
who they are. It's just, to your point, something that you have to manage. So just more generally, and you and I talked about this before as we sort of close up this conversation, how important, or let's talk about how important it is that men, and especially Black men, discuss mental health openly. I'd love to hear your perspectives. No, I think it's, it's hugely important. Like I said, I've gotten to this point where I'm comfortable having the conversation because the, the conversation is therapeutic for me at this point. But I'm not gonna lie, in the beginning it was hard, right? Um, I look back at when I was first diagnosed, I didn't wanna really tell anybody because it's like everybody looked, you know, in my community, you know, I'm working at the NFLPA, I'm going to Super Bowls and they see me work talking, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Saquon Barkley. So it's like, I don't want them to think anything's wrong with me. And this is my doing. Then I think about just in the industry in general, like you make Forbes, like there's people in the industry alone that look up to you. So you got people in the community, then you got the industry. And then at your job, you're a high performer. And so you almost just don't want to let it in and talking about mental health. It's just like, I've always been told, didn't grow up with a lot of men, just be tough and tough your way through things. You know, where I'm like at, you know, 30 year old, 29 year old men at home crying, like depressed, you know, and nobody can see this. And so I'm always big on the fact that like, I always try to find a reason why I'm going through something. And I think that in my, what I live by is like, I don't go through things just for myself. Like I have a seven year old now that I'm raising that I don't know if he one day he'll have to go through anxiety. Um, I hope not, but I want him to be able to see his father who's gotten through it the right way. And so I have to be vocal about it and I have to advocate for it. Um, and so that's one of the main reasons why I think personally it's more so for my family, you know, and the legacy that I want to leave behind. But two, like you said, the athletes that I work for, right, like a lot more of them are speaking out and I want them to be able to think it's, you know, it's a safe place to talk about this stuff. Like, you know, people talk about the sororities, fraternities they are, the fans they are like, why can't you talk about mental health? You know, like that's something that you deal with, too. Right. And it's like, let's make the conversation normal um, so it can help people. And it's funny, the more that I've talked about this, I can't tell you the amount of people in the industry that have reached out to me and just say, hey, um, I'm dealing with the same thing, you know. Um, so I think it's important for me. Um, and then you brought up the African-American piece, too. You know, I, you know, just even doing my research about just anxiety and mental health issues. I think about my upbringing growing up without a father in my life. Right. And having this macho, tough life about keep all your emotions in. And like you, I think about my generation, a lot of us did grow up without fathers. And I think that a lot of black men do struggle with mental health issues. And you see it lead over into how they manage relationships. Um, how they manage professionalism, you know, uh, things like that. And so for me, it's like, all right, now that I'm going through this, and mind you, it's funny that I'm talking about mental health as if I've gotten over it. Like, I'm still in the middle of my own battle, but it's like, hey, I'm going to take you on this journey with me and say there's up and down days, but it'll be okay, right? Like, um, so again, that's just that's just how I plan to navigate it again, because I, I feel like the reason that I've been, and I call it blessed with dealing with this issue, is because I can be vocal and advocate for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so glad you are. And, and to your, when you said people reach out, I know you and I have done the same with one another. Like, thank you for sharing this because it is very important. And having you be more vocal and let other men and or black men know that it's okay if you're emotional. And I think that's something too that is a struggle is a lot of that tough guy, you can't show emotion mantra or mindset is what makes it more difficult because then you have to internalize it. And you, you feel like you have to deal with it yourself. So I love that you've been more vocal about it. So hopefully others feel more inspired to know that they aren't alone and that they can also talk about it openly as well. So just last question that I ask everyone on the show is what is a cause or passion you want amplified? Something that you believe strongly in? Honestly, it's the mental health piece. Because I think that's 
And again, I've never really had conversations around something like this where I typically have them when I've like overcome something. Like I talk about my brain injury, like, yeah, I overcame that. You know, I think about where I'm at professionally, like, yeah, I'm, you know, quote unquote, at the top of my I'm at where I need to be. But when I think about mental health, it's like, shit, I just had a panic attack two days ago. Like, so I'm still in the middle of it. Right. So I don't think I've overcome it. I've just learned how to manage it. And so I think something I want to amplify is just the conversations around mental health. Um, especially for people who are high performance. I think I'm the one, I never believe in mental health. I labeled it. I'm like, mental health, that's for weak people. That's for people that struggle. But I'm like, look, I got a dream. I was in a mental health facility. No shoestrings in my shoes, no windows with people that had schizophrenia, people that, that didn't look like me. I was the best dressed person in there. And I'm in here struggling just like the rest of them. So you don't have to label it. And it's okay. Like The point is getting the, the support and resources you are you, that you need to get better. And learning how to manage it. Like, yeah, I take antidepressants every day and I would like to make that normal. And I don't, you know, before I didn't want to get on it. Like, I remember getting off of, you know, Paxil because I'm like, I don't want to take pills every day because that's not healthy. No, I'll probably be one of those people that have to take antidepressants every day and I have to be okay with that. Again, because I think my end goal is I want to get to a point where my son looks at me and he may deal with the same issues and sees like, you know, I could, even though I have, you know, I deal with mental health issues, his may look a lot different or he may deal with anything at all. I want to, I want him to see that he can overcome it. By looking at me. So um, that's kind of like where I'm at right now. I would love to see, you know, the conversation on mental health amplified. I love that. Well, I'm glad you were able to join us. And thank you so much for sharing everything. I had fun. I also found this, to your point, therapeutic. I think we might, I might bill our listeners because they just got a good 40 minute therapy session <laughs> right. out of this. And we <laughs> you need the insurance card. Give me insurance because I'll talk to Exactly. Like I've been paying, you know, lots of dollars in therapy to share with all of you what I learned. So uh, expect a bill. Make, that's another thing you say. Before I go, you make a mental health resources yes. affordable this is ridiculous that therapy that costs as much but that's all that's a whole nother we'll save that one for season two well dior thank you so much for joining <laughs> i really appreciate it no thanks for having me and kudos to you for doing this again to buy the platform for people to have this type of conversation i love it thanks so much for listening All episodes can be found on Apple, Spotify, or any preferred podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Meg Reyes, and you can find Dior on Twitter at Dior Ginyard. Don't forget to rate and review, subscribe, tell your friends, share on your IG story, tweet to the world, all that good stuff. Amplified is a Blue Wire production. Shout out to the wonderful women who helped make this happen. Production and editing were done by Laura Stickles and visuals were created by Alyssa Claren. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, please call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the word HOME to 741-741.